Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Can we make sure we talk about the soundtrack first? Because I know where this conversation is going to go. <laughs> and I know that we're going to be, we're going to be doing like a scene by scene analysis of some stuff, I'm sure. Uh, and, yeah. uh, I promise not too many rabbit holes, Ryan, that the soundtrack is worthy of on its own. The soundtrack is stacked. The soundtrack has a super group. Yeah. That's two, actually. I mean, th- this is, this is. Just so much to unpack just with the soundtrack alone. So I will try really hard not to talk about you and McGregor's naked body covered in oil. <laughs> yeah. I actually, th- I think you've shown a lot of restraint over the past few months, suggesting we do Velvet Goldmine without like screaming after <laughs> and being like, Ewan's naked, full frontal nudity. <laughs> full frontal. Yeah, guys, I think I've shown a ton of restraint. Thank you for acknowledging that. So welcome to Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a podcast where I talk to someone, or in this case, two someones, about a soundtrack <laughs> that they have a personal connection to. Brandis Wilson and Nicole Barlow are back today, and we're going to talk about the 1998 Todd Haynes film, Velvet Goldmine. Nicole picked today's film, but before we dive into the film, let's make some connections to some of the other soundtracks that we've talked about on this podcast. So I'm going to geek out a little bit about soundtrack supervisor people. So in our Life Aquatic episode, Nicole, we talked about Randall Poster. Randall! And he's kind of Wes Anderson's go-to soundtrack supervisor guy. And he is also associated with this film. And the person who did the score for the film is Carter Burwell, who was a soundtrack supervisor for Airheads and like Wayne's World 2. So you have a lot of people who are very well-versed in rock and roll. Very well-versed in rock and roll. I mean, this is this is a quintessential rock and roll film. This has been described as a, a love letter to glam rock, and I think it is exactly that. It is this spectacular of just glitter and glam and fabulousness. And it it really like goes deep into that genre. There is there is no cutting corners with this film. Todd Haynes did the era right. So Todd Haynes is maybe not the most well known director, mm-hmm. but he's known for knowing his music. Yep. So he's probably best known for this film and also I'm Not There, which is his Bob Dylan film. Yep. Todd Haynes is, um, yeah, he's he's an interesting one, right? He he kind of rose to notoriety because, I don't know if you guys know this, but Todd Haynes' uh, first film was this thing called The Karen Carpenter Story, and it's made completely with Barbie dolls, so no actors, it's just Barbie. <laughs> and uh, initially, like, because I guess Todd Haynes is the guy that asked for, like, forgiveness and not permission, he just went ahead and made it, assuming that he would get the rights. And then the Carpenter family saw it and they were like, no, we don't like any of this and you can't use it. So, <laughs> no. Uh, and the, the same thing happened with Velvet Goldmine, right? Where Bowie was initially in and he was going to offer some of his music to the film. And then he found out that Todd Haynes had it in his mind to make so much of it kind of a, a, a biopic about Bowie based on some unauthorized biographies. And he was like, no, yoink, just kidding. You're not using my music. So that's Todd Haynes in a nutshell. Not only that, but apparently he was like so angry that he was like threatening to sue. So I guess there were like a few rewrites here and there to make it a little bit less Bowie-esque. Although if you look at any sort of like list of references of all the ways that it wraps around Bowie's life, I can't imagine what was possibly taken out because it's like pretty thorough. <laughs> There's so many references in like bands' names and people's names. And then I'm glad you talked about the Barbie thing um, because <laughs> that scene <laughs> with uh, Slade and, um, and Kurt, yeah, yeah, like uh, making out and about to like have sex with the Barbie scene. I was just like, what the hell? Because I had no idea about his earlier film that was like all Barbies until I did some digging afterward. And I'm like, I mean, I guess that makes more sense. But like, also, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, 
Todd Haynes just he he goes there at so many of these scenes. If you've never seen the film, uh, come completely out of the blue and just smack you across the face with the shock value, which is is very glam rock to me. So that feels <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, you know, as Ryan said, like the people involved in this are are pretty pretty rock and roll, and it is so like. Um, I don't know who they missed in terms of we weren't able to use Bowie, but we're going to use everybody else. Everything else that's cool from that era, we're going to we're going to swoop it. Yeah, and technically, I think on one of the songs, Bowie's backup vocals are actually on there because he produced one of the songs. So Lou Reed, right? Yeah, and so he's like technically in the film, even though he was like, "I will not be in this film." So they got him in there anyway on technicality, on a sneaky technicality. Yeah, yep. it's a very sneaky, a lot of sneaky workarounds. And like you said, Brandis, I have no idea what they sucked out of this to make it less Bowie because our, our main character, who is who is played by Jonathan Reese Myers, Brian Slade, who is kind of the, you could say he's an amalgam of like maybe Bowie and Joe Bryant, but he's mostly Bowie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, that that is pretty obvious. They want him to like embody this very like early Bowie, like ethereal thing that he does. Like Bowie's early career arc is kind of all the first part of this film. They just use different artists from the era to represent that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really like, what did you take out? You changed his name to not being David Bowie. Like, <laughs> yeah, what, what did you take out? Um, I think we so we did Moulin Rouge, right? And so we talked a little bit about uh, Ewan McGregor singing. Yes, Jonathan Rhys Meyers and Ewan McGregor both sing in this film. I'm so curious what you guys think of their singing ability in this film. I was surprised. Like, obviously, I knew that like Ewan McGregor's done musicals, and so I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He's probably gonna like do his own singing in this. No big deal. But then Jonathan Rhys Meyers. First of all, I was like, does this dude not age? Like, when was this movie made? Because it looks like it was made yesterday, first of all. Second of all, um, also, I was surprised that he was singing. I had no idea that he could, and I thought he did a great job. I was At first, I was like, that's not really him. And then I looked it up, and I was like, oh, no, that's, that's really him. Well, sometimes it isn't him. Well, sometimes it isn't, no, but, like, sometimes it was. And I was just, I didn't know that he sang at all. Yeah, I think, okay. he has, I think he does an admirable job because I imagine he probably had to take some vocal coaching for this movie. The parts of the songs that he's not singing or that are overdubbed are overdubbed by, drum roll, Tom York! <laughs> Tom York doing a Brian Ferry impression. Pro- Tom York <laughs> doing his best Brian Ferry, which is kind of the most like 1998 perfect thing. It's kind of amazing that Todd Haynes and Randall Poster were like, well, we can't afford all this music, so let's get Tom York and Johnny Greenwood to form a cover band, and that'll be much cheaper. <laughs> much cheaper. I always think that, too. I'm always like, well, they really didn't cut any corners in terms of, like, and maybe they had the budget for Bowie if they were going to license all of Bowie's music, so they just said, like, F it. We're going to mm-hmm. put all of this into like Roxy music and Brian Eno. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to bring Tom York and John Greenwood and all the members of Placebo just for fun. Yeah, I mean, David Bowie wouldn't be cheap. So if they already had all that budget earmarked, why not? <laughs> Got to spend it somehow. This is how you know, Brandis, that I work in advertising. So we're always like, hmm, what did that music license cost? Really- <laughs> I've read that, you know, for a lot of soundtracks that. If they can't afford a song, they'll just have a band cover it because it's right. a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, but in this case, that's like not the cheapest way to cover other music. So <laughs> get the most famous people we can find to cover these famous songs. Exactly. Like that's not how you save money. So that's just really funny. <laughs> not a performer, directors of the world, not a prize performer. But, you know, it's really effective. Um, the the songs that they have Tom York and, you know, his crew of Merry Misfits doing as this fake band called Venus in Furs uh, are, are great. Like those covers of Roxy Music that they do are, are really awesome, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, they fit really well. They're very, like, kind of dr- done very dramatically. So I feel like they, if you can consider this movie kind of like half a musical, which it sort of is, sort of half a musical in a way. It has a lot of musical interludes. I think it really starts, like, it helps carry the story without having to be, um, without taking it out of the idea that, like, oh, that's not Jonathan Rhys Meyers' voice. It's Mm -hmm. not the same. 
And it, it worked somehow. Yeah, no, I thought it was super seamless and all the music, the way that it fits together. If anything, I'd say it's more than a musical. I'd say it's like a music video, actually. Like a whole thing felt like a very elaborate half like art performance, half like music video for like the soundtrack. Like if the soundtrack was the main piece and then the video just happened to accompany it. I mean, I know it's supposed to be like a, the glam rock version of Citizen Kane, but to me, like the music was very front and center the whole time, but not in a bad way. Yeah, well, like performance is so central to it because there are so many both, you know, kind of live and music video-esque performances that that intercut mm -hmm. the whole movie, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, when Ewan McGregor sings, Ewan McGregor does a couple of Stooges covers. He does Give Me Danger and then he does TVI, which again, like Ewan McGregor can sing, but I, I don't think that I imagined up until I saw this that Ewan McGregor can like sing like Iggy Pop. <laughs> Like, a really great embodiment of Iggy Pop, which is not an easy task. Like, there's only one Iggy Pop. Yeah, but also you're biased, so I don't know that your opinion counts. Well, no, that's why I'm asking you guys. That's why you're here. <laughs> Come down off the ledge, put the Kool-Aid in. Ian McGregor can do no wrong in your eyes. I mean, he can't. But we're going to steer back to the music. How was I familiar with Rocky Horror Picture Show, but not with this? up to this point in my life, because this to me was like, definitely like a huge hit. Like there were no misses here. Right, I think um, I think it's such an underrated cult classic, especially if you love music from this era. If you love music from this era and also have been or are currently an English major, this is kind of like, this, this <laughs> movie is for you, right? So this is like, like this movie yeah. is made for me, basically. That especially, like you said, it's a love letter to glam rock, but I feel like it's glam rock's love letter to Oscar Wilde. Like, obviously, there are a lot of Oscar Wilde quotes in there, references, a character supposedly being Oscar Wilde, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, it is so, like, Oscar Wilde, and I know that it's supposed to be a send, like, send up to Bowie, but it just felt like Bowie was just, like, a more modern take that, like, a current audience could stomach, but it was really, like, a send up to Oscar Wilde himself, like... It was insane how much it was just like revering him, and I absolutely loved that. So yeah, great for English majors. <laughs> so great for English English majors out there. Watch this movie. <laughs> so I saw this movie when we were, you know, talking about doing this episode. So, you know, for the last twenty five years, I'd only really known about the soundtrack, and it seems like a perfect companion piece to Hedwig. I know Hedwig came later, but it seems like these two films kind of have a lot of similarities. Yeah. They're, they're very much bookends in my mind. They're like a similar time period of release, right? If I'm not totally mistaken. Yeah, like just a couple of years apart. Yeah. So they're sort of like contemporaries. They have a lot of the same, a lot of the same vibe. Yeah. And they kind of, and how they tell their stories is kind of similar as well. Right. Yeah. No, totally. Because they, they both kind of focus on these themes of, um, you know, like identity um, wrapped around this idea of like musical performance and presentation. So they have a lot of similarities. I also love Hedwig. Hedwig is amazing. And and yeah, like the, the both of the songs, the song choices for this movie are just, they're so great. Like, Again, they didn't get Bowie, but it also really takes you there and it feels so of its time and place. Like, it has everything. Like, what does it not have? It's got Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. It's got, like, all this early Roxy music. That scene that's set to um, to Roxy Music's Virginia Plain, where it's kind of like a makeover scene, right? Where they're all doing, like, that photo shoot. I think mm -hmm. it was the first time I had ever heard that song when I saw it like way back in the day and I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm mind blown. I need all of the Roxy music like in my life now. <laughs> I almost wonder if they had gotten David Bowie's music, if it would have taken something, something away from it. Not because like David Bowie's music wouldn't be relevant, obviously, and not because it's not amazing, but... I can't say like too much on the nose because it's so incredibly on the nose as we said, but just if that would have been too meta or if that would have made it like a little bit less, like we're referencing him, but now we're using his music. So now it's just like this weird thing of like, it is David Bowie without it being David Bowie. I don't know. Like I'm wondering if it actually like that accidental, like serendipitous thing of not being able to use his music actually kind of contributed to it in some way. 
it kind of makes it more awesome, right? Because it's it's a much steeper hill to climb, but at the same time, it's it, the movie as it stands now because it doesn't have any Bowie music is more of this kind of like fantasia. It's this like wonderful like ambrosia amalgam of all things glam, and I think that mm-hmm. it like a certain uniqueness and magic that it wouldn't have had otherwise because it would have been a lot more straightforward and you would have been saying to yourself like is that Bowie like does he look like Bowie does he perform like Bowie and I think it liberates it liberates your characters when they don't have to be an exact person yeah so it's like you got to do a biopic without being constrained by it being a biopic and also just because David Bowie is such a performer then it's almost like well if you're doing a biopic why isn't David Bowie doing it himself. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, especially at this time, because he would have been like, you know, very much alive and mm-hmm. very much like making music and performing and in his kind of like, you know, industrial, I'm hanging out with Trent Reznor phase. So, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm afraid of Americans, so it would have been totally relevant. <laughs> right. It allows you to turn off like your music fan fact checker when mm-hmm. you're watching this movie. Yeah. Yes. Ryan, yes, that's exactly what it does. It's like, because if you love music and if you love, you know, the, if you love certain artists, obviously you're going to be, you're going to be comparing, you're going to be asking like, okay, is the, is the hair right? Is the costume correct? Did it happen at this concert? Like, so this, this takes it into a fantasy land that is actually, it's really pleasant to get lost in. And it gives you more of a feeling instead of yeah having you kind of like tick those boxes, which is super cool. And it's the same thing for, you know, for the Kurt Wilde character, which Ewan McGregor plays, right? Where he's Iggy Pop, but he's also like a little bit of Lou Reed. He's like a little bit of Kurt Cobain, like a dash of Kurt Cobain, <laughs> for good measure. Just because, fuck it, why not? Yeah. It should have been any other name. Like, just don't call him Kurt because that's all I could think the whole time. Yeah. So he also gets a super group to play with or to sing with. Yep. So um, we have Venus and Furs for the David Bowie or Glam songs. And then for the Stooges song, you have a band that has, I believe Mike Watt is playing bass. I think one of the guys from the Stooges, Ron Ashton, is playing in it. And you have Thurston Moore and Steve uh, Shelley from Sonic Youth, yep. Mark Arm from Mud Honey. So you've got you've got a pretty good super group there too. Maybe not as famous as Tom York and Johnny Greenwood and Andy McKay from Roxy Music, but you know they equipped Ewan McGregor's band with some pretty good ringers as well. Absolutely, no, that band is is equally as stacked, and I think qualifies as a super group. Like those are those are enormous names, the Wild Rats. With three T's. Rat. I want to know what it feels like to be Jonathan Reese Myers or like Ewan McGregor, who are, you know, like we're big stars like at the time, but not like insanely huge, maybe as much as today. And to be playing like the frontman of these, like, you know, like with actual rock stars like behind you. Mm-hmm. Already when you're being an actor, you know, you have to step into someone's life and you have to have like the confidence to do that. But to do it with like the actual people that you're making this music about behind you as right. like well I mean around. Yeah. <laughs> like how does that feel like how like nerve-wracking is that the sheer like confidence factor of being able to be a front man when that is not your forte and that's not necessarily like your background is I guess a testament to the quality of the casting in this film that they were mm-hmm. able to find actors that could slip so well into those sorts of roles and you believe it you believe it and it's not like okay that's an actor pretending to be a musician like i think for the most part you pretty much buy it uh you, you guys know this is coming and i'm sorry that i have to dissect this scene on the podcast but there's there's a scene where the wild rats where the iggy pop stooges moment happens at this like giant uk music festival uh and you know obviously like the stooges were known for being like very shocking and having on stage antics and Iggy is like whatever carving up his chest like that was they were known for like at the time right just being sort of unhinged so I read that in that scene where Ewan is performing on the festival stage and he's supposed to like whatever open Jonathan Reesmeyer's eyes like oh my god this music it's crazy we were supposed to like whatever dance around like moon the audience he's supposed to moon the audience and that's it (laughs) <laughs> and when McGregor decided, nope, 
I'm just going to take my pants off completely. <laughs> I'm going to take my pants off. I'm going to douse myself in this oil. I'm going to cover myself in glitter. Like, this movie kept that in. <laughs> and you forgot the detail and then turn around and face the audience. Right. Yep. Right. So there is some full frontal in this film. So for those of you out there that are wondering, I don't know, I'm not really convinced by Velvet Goldmine. I only I need to watch this film. You might want to know that fact. <laughs> Again, Nicole's only a little bit biased, only slightly. That, you know, is not the main selling point of this film to her at all. Not at all. I'm Audience. amazed at how composed you are about talking about this. I mean, I hope you practice. Can hear me like leaping out of my seat. I'm just like, I'm I'm literally sitting here like, oh my god, I've only been waiting 20 years for somebody to ask me about Velvet Goldmine. Now I finally have a platform for all of this like ranting and raving about how freaking amazing it is and how you get <laughs> your cam your camera's off is your camera's off because your eyes are like popped out of your your head right now. Yeah, my camera's off, so you guys don't have to see me like gesticulating wildly. <laughs> my beer because I'm thinking about this movie and how like outstanding it is on every level. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, if for no other reason, watch this one scene. <laughs> Completely crazy, unhinged. You have no idea what kind of ride it's going to take you on movie because it's great. And he does such an admirable job of embodying this Iggy Pop character, which again, like. How do you even begin to do that, right? Like, because he's just such a known figure. And I think he kind of brings his own thing to it. Um, I think, look at me, like, and now I'm talking about it like it's super high art. Like, guys, we're back to just the art of filmmaking. <laughs> I mean, I think it was to, like, a degree. Like, it has every single genre of film, like, wrapped up in one thing. It has, like, sci-fi with the pin. It has horror with, like, the creepy whispering children. It has <laughs> camp. It has noir with uh, Christian Bale's, like, first monologue is, like, super Citizen Kane noir. Yeah. Um, it has, like, literally everything, which is on brand for, like, the whole fashion and era of the time. So I think even the way the film was made itself is a send up to like glam rock is a send up to the fashion, which by the way, got nominated for an Oscar for best costume design, which I am not mad about that because the fashion in this film was like 100% on point. I love the performance of babies on fire in the film. So it's another Roxy music song, or, or I think it's just an Eno song, right? Sorry. It's, an Eno I think song. it's an Eno song. Um, so you have Jonathan Reese Myers and, Kurt Wilde on stage together. Kurt Wilde's playing guitar in the band. And Ian McGregor has to basically be Iggy Pop playing a Johnny Greenwood solo <laughs> on stage, you know? So he has to mimic that he's playing this Johnny Greenwood, you know, bonkers guitar lick. Right. And then he has to do the Iggy Pop thing. And then he has to, you know, basically uh, do something super shocking with Jonathan Reese Myers on stage because he's on stage with, you know, quote Bowie, unquote. So there's a lot going on in that performance. And I was really, uh, was, I was really impressed watching it. Yeah, there's that on screen. Th there's that performance moment, right? Where like you get like the infamous like Bowie, uh, Ronson, like electric BJ on stage thing, which like whatever shocked the world. And then I think the other element of it is that it's like happening like over an orgy. <laughs> So there's a lot going on. Like it's a pretty, it's a pretty heavy use of that. <laughs> no, I thought that performance was like really good. I thought all the performances were like, they felt very authentic. Like you guys said, like it felt very real, but there was also a lot of chemistry between them two. Um, prior to like the Barbie scene, when they finally did kiss, I was like, just make out already. Like I totally believed the chemistry between them. I thought it was great. They have great chemistry. And it should also be mentioned before this podcast is over that there a young Christian Bale appears in this movie, like the sort of like third character in this triad of main characters is Christian Bale. Christian Bale as, um, you know, this um, young guy like navigating like his sexuality in London and in the scene and eventually becomes a reporter who's like tracking down like what's the true story of what happened to our like Bowie figure why did he like go out of the spotlight that's kind of Christian Bale's character um you get to see Christian Bale in some truly terrible makeup yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like eyeshadows if you're into that it's fun 
Christian Bale trying to be glamorous but failing miserably to get his makeup right. <laughs> it's it's a very strange role for him. Yeah, it is an odd role for him, right? It's not. It's certainly not like the you know Batman, American Psycho, you know super macho kind of trajectory that a lot of his films take. Yeah, even Ford versus Ferrari, he's just kind of this British racing asshole. <laughs> right, 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 right. He's so subdued in this film, like, because he's very just kind of like this soft, like, shy boy for most of it. Um, and that certainly is not like most of that. Most of the modern Christian male performances that people are familiar with, it doesn't fit any of the categories. Yeah, he's, he's very emotionless in a lot of his movies, even in like the yeah. big short where he's like that investor guy. Like, it's all about being like super awkward and like pretty much having no like social tact. <laughs> totally also i think this movie should be celebrated for like everybody in it having a completely normal body type that wasn't transformed like for the film because christian bale just has like whatever a normal body type he like get super skinny or get super the fat. fattest i've ever seen him <laughs> as, as not dick cheney is this the part where we start talking about you mcgregor's weight because he's like not as skinny as he was in train spotting well oh, i want to talk i want to talk about the trailer of this film I don't even know if I've seen the trailer of this film, but yeah, let's talk about that. So just, you know, out of curiosity, I was like, I'm going to watch the trailer before I watch the movie. And it is the worst trailer for this film. It makes it look like Knives Out Glam Rock edition. <laughs> it's all, it's a two minute trailer of like, who killed Brian Slade? <laughs> it is. I remember because when you guys first, and by you guys, I mean Nicole, proposed that we do this movie um i was like okay cool i'll watch the trailer because i've never seen it and i got completely the wrong impression of what this movie is going to be but then i waited so long before i watched the movie that i forgot about the trailer and ryan you're like reminding me that like yeah i definitely thought it was gonna be like he was assassinated and like who did it and like all of this stuff like completely not what the movie's about at all so whoever edited that trailer whether they were instructed to or not gave the audience a totally different impression <laughs> that's fantastic i love that you guys wandered into this thinking that it was some kind of like whodunit mystery movie that's yeah cool. that's amazing well, especially when you start out watching the film too because like Again, Christian Bale's first monologue is like so melodramatic and it's so noir. Like he's like this private investigator instead of a journalist. And then you don't exactly know that he's not shot. And then you have like the um, Jack Ferry, like in the wings, you know, shoots him like Abraham Lincoln moment or whatever. So I didn't know that it wasn't going that way. Like when I first started watching the film either. And then wasn't like until it was like, it's a hoax. And I'm like, oh, this is not, this is not where we're going. Okay. <laughs> Well, and I mean, essentially from that moment, you kind of lose the whole thread of like, you stop caring about who shot him because you kind of know he's not dead. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's a hoax. There's not really any like high stakes around it. And then the movie just kind of like, it, it unfolds in so many different and more interesting ways that, that whatever quote unquote mystery there was like does not matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie where the mystery at the beginning doesn't matter and the twist at the end doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter at all. Also, this movie time hops a lot. So, it, you know, a lot of it mm -hmm. is set in the 70s, but uh, some of it is set in the 80s as well. So th there's definitely the, an element of confusion that I think mm -hmm. this movie inspires. It's the kind of movie that has so much going on, both in terms of like the deep cuts that they use to refer to these musicians and this era and kind of investigating the soundtrack, but also just the story not being linear. Like, I think part of the reason I like this movie so much is because you can you can watch it a lot, like and not just for you and McGregor. <laughs> Lies. Lies. Partly, but not completely. But you can it bears repeat watching, right? Because you don't get it right away, but the more you watch it, the more you um the more you discover about it. And those are the best movies, the ones that you can watch a lot. Well, plus the layers, not just like the narrative, but also like the Oscar Wilde quotes, like the narration, um, you know, the dialogue's really great. The music is obviously awesome. The costume and like all that, like there's so many complex layers that are all just like really great eye candy and ear candy that, yeah, you can watch it many times and not get tired of it because you can't actually take all of it in in the first watching. You can't. It's, it's overwhelming. It's almost like intentionally overstimulating. So mm -hmm. there, there's just so much going on that you have to kind of like, 
you have to consider it all in your first watch and be like, what just happened to me? And then you want to go back and watch it again. At least if you're me, that's kind of how, how this movie became one of my, one of my favorites, one of my like back pocket go-tos because I was really like, I don't even know if I like this. This is, there's so much here. Well, the first time you blacked out because you McGregor was naked. <laughs> and then the second time you thought, maybe I like this movie. Wow, guys, this is, I feel extremely called out right now. <laughs> Again, also, I want to point out to our uh, dedicated listeners that Nicole's handle on this recording is president of the Ewan McGregor fan club. So don't feel bad for her for us calling her out. She's doing it herself. Yeah, because you're the president of the Taunt Nicole Club. (laughs) I have another music question, but spoiler alerts for anyone who hasn't seen the film yet. Go watch the movie because I'm about to spoil the quote unquote twist at the end. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, if the main character is supposed to be David Bowie and then you have this whole thing where he like suddenly becomes this other character of like Tommy, was this Tommy character based on anyone or was it just based on David Bowie's transformation throughout his career? Thoughts? So I, I have an answer to this. Mm-hmm. You guys know I have an answer to this. That does not, <laughs> does not involve nudity. My answer to this, 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 if you consider this film a love letter to glam rock, I think the commentary is that by the time you know the the early to mid 80s rolled around david bowie had effectively killed off his glam rock persona and he had you know signed to whatever it was capitol records whatever major label he was on in the 80s kind of moved away from some of the things that made him famous and become this like pop rock superstar Mm -hmm. Um, and i think you can also infer from the movie that todd haynes is not a great fan of like the culture, like the music culture of the eighties <laughs> and you know, his take on it is that it's just, it's kind of soulless, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, against this backdrop of like the Reagan era of, you know, being in, incredibly, incredibly anti-gay and incredibly like you have to put all of that stuff from the seventies back in the closet, like that kind of reversal of everything that was free about glam rock um, I think that's what they're trying to say is basically like he sold out. So yeah, he's the same person, but he sold out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting too, because you think about like all of, you know, you start out as like something is the original and then it like sort of has this like smaller following and then it kind of becomes bigger and then it becomes so big, it hits the mainstream and it gets watered down. Mm-hmm. And so like, I totally hear like the commentary on like the eighties being a bit soulless, but if you also think about it, in a way, it was, like, watered down to the point where, like, you know, you have um, Billy Idol and you have all these other people who incorporated pieces of that, like, not on such an original level and not as much, but it, like, kind of became so imbued in the 80s, too, of, like, dudes wearing makeup who weren't, you know, like, outwardly saying that they're bi or gay, that it's just, like, I don't know, it's kind of interesting that you have this, like, pendulum back and forth, and so you have this, like, watered-down version that is somewhat like referring to the original, but then you also have like people saying that like, you know, it kind of like swung back in the other direction. It's just an interesting thing because it keeps happening over and over. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's kind of Todd Haynes saying like, there's, you know, a lack of authenticity that you have like these artists like Billy Idol or like Bowie himself that kind of become like a copy of a copy. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not the same, um, you know, rawness that it was previously you know nor is it the same kind of honesty about sexuality and about gender identity that you would kind of started back then now it's just kind of like no stuff it all back in the closet and there's something kind of like there's something very like sad and gray too about how they represent the 80s like you go immediately from like this technicolor glam rock 70s and as soon as you transition to the 80s you're like on a train with Christian Bale in some like really bad balloon pants and everything is like gray and like washed and green. And it's just, it's a bummer essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely like the, the, there's definitely like a stark contrast that Todd Haynes makes between the two eras. And you don't really even hear like music from the eighties either. You just kind of get these little like snippets or hints of like what might be happening. You see like a woman in a, in a like red leather jacket that looks very thriller. Like you mm-hmm. get a lot of hints, like, you know, this is the eighties are just kind of commercial. Yeah. I wonder like too, how much of it was like 
um, inspired by like when the actual film was made though, because it was made in the nineties, which feels much more like those scenes. Like you said, like Haynes did like the whole much more muted colors and like the train scenes, those felt very industrial to me. Like it felt like Nine Inch Nails actually would have been like a good, like <laughs> slip in there. And I'm not trying to say just because like, Ooh, Nine Inch Nails. It just, like, it felt very like nihilistic and like nineties to me, like those scenes again, also, cause I think Kurt Cobain was like, on my brain as well. And so it's like, just, it's just an interesting take on the eighties to me, because to me, the eighties are very colorful and the nineties are like that darker, more like monotone industrial, like whatever. So it's just interesting that it's like, it was made, the film was made in the nineties. And then you're saying it's like a commentary on the eighties, but it's like almost sort of like looking forward to the nineties in a commentary of when he was making the film too, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like that, that's an interesting kind of wrinkle in it is that it was made in the 90s and the 90s kind of had this whole nostalgia for the 70s. So there's, there's definitely something to that. And if you're following along at home and you want to make this podcast a drinking game, Ewan McGregor has been brought up already. Uh, Nine Inch Nails has been brought up now. So. Also David Bowie, because Nicole has not done a single episode not talking about David Bowie. Drink. Randall Poster. Randall Poster has been brought up, so drink. Yeah, make your own game. We need to release a bingo card um, on like your social media so people can play along with like bingo for our episodes. <laughs> Just scratch it off. Yeah. And it's funny because you have all 90s musicians mm-hmm. covering 70s songs or making songs to sound like they're from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, like say, even some of the original songs, right? You have Grantly Buffalo. And then you have uh, Shudder to Think, who I'd love to talk about. Yes. So they have an interesting trajectory as a band. They came up in like the late 80s. They're from like the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, uh, most known for Discord records with like Fugazi Minor Threat. Shudder to Think is kind of post-hardcore, like they don't play Fast and Furious, but they got kind of big in the mid 90s, kind of mistaken as a grunge band. I think they came out with an album in 1994 called Pony Express Record, uh, which I really like. But since, you know, they played around with time signatures and stuff and they had, you know, big, thick guitars and stuff, you know, it, it it's a good album. But it, I think it got a lot of um, attention because, you know, grunge was on the rise and it kind of fit in there. Mm-hmm. But they're an interesting band because um, I saw them in 95 and they were opening for Foo Fighters. Dang. on their first tour and and you know so they grew up in the same area as dave grohl so dave grohl um wanted to bring like friends from like home on tour from the dc maryland uh virginia area and everyone hated shutter to think at the show oh, <laughs> like they, you know they're not a radio band right foo fighters are very radio friendly you know well, one, they're expecting like something to sound like Nirvana, <laughs> and then, and then two, they're not expecting like this kind of post rock t- time signature, like weird time signature band yeah. that has this lead singer that has like like a bedazzled face, yeah. and <laughs> and like like it like there's this weird uh, juxtaposition with their music because he has like this really nice voice. He likes to sing in falsetto. He's got a lot of vibrato in the voice. It's very different from like the even the more popular like grunge voices of the time, like Chris Cornell or mm-hmm. or Eddie Vedder. I feel like those are more, uh, you know, kind of more masculine voices. I guess. Yeah. Or a little bit more gritty, and you have this guy with like a really pretty voice, and they kind of embraced it. Like he dressed up in like togas and stuff on stage. You know, he basically invited people to call him, you know, uh, homophobic slurs. Like, they like to push people's buttons like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember enjoying, like, it took me, like, a while. It took me, like, maybe halfway through their set to, like, kind of get the music. And then I started to enjoy it. And once I started to enjoy it, I realized, like, there's, like, some sort of glam element in it. Mm -hmm. which, Which is very deep for, like, what, I was 13 at the time? To be like, oh, there's, like, some glam in this music. I love that Ryan is casually 13 at this, like, really transgressive, <laughs> like, rock moment, Foo Fighters show. Like, good for you being 13 and being, like, way cooler than me, Ryan. I was right? at a Boys to Men concert when I was 13. I was at an Incubus concert. 
Yeah. That was interesting. Mm. Have definitely been to an Incubus concert, but that is a different podcast. <laughs> Um, so after after 1994, they kind of went in a more glam direction, and they have two songs on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So they have hot they have hot one, which is near the beginning of the film, and that is based off of a lot of Bowie's glam work. Mm-hmm. And then they have a song later, the Ballad of Maxwell Demon, and that is once you know Bowie has made this transition, or not Bowie, but when uh, Brian Slade has made this transition. So this is a big moment for Shudder to think in their career because they ended up scoring some uh, movie soundtracks after this. Uh, what's, what scores did they do after this? I'm really curious. I believe they did High Art. Hmm. And then they did an awesome soundtrack that um, I'd love to talk about sometime called First Love, Last Rights. Hmm. Haven't seen the movie, but they basically made a bunch of songs to sound like they're from the 60s with a bunch of guest musicians on each track. So you have a great Jeff Buckley song, Liz Fair, Billy Corgan, Nina from the Cardigans, um, Alan and Mimi from Low, John Doe, uh, Robin from Cheap Trick. Like they all just jump on these songs. <laughs> Wow. See, this is why I love this podcast. You get to really you get to really shine a light on some very underserved, like forgotten moments, especially in like kind of like 90s music culture. Cause I do feel like I don't know as much about Shutter to Think as you obviously do, <laughs> but they are kind of the unsung heroes of this soundtrack because they have the task of carrying the songs that are supposed to be like the breakthrough Bowie-esque songs. They're the original songs on the soundtrack, right? They're supposed to establish this Brian Slade character as being like the, you know, it person in music at that time. And that's like a hefty task. And these are like, they're fun songs. Like they're good songs. They're not like throwaways to me. That's the understatement of the center. You're tasked to write original music that's supposed to represent David Bowie, who's like one of the most universally revered musicians. No big deal. (laughs) How many ways could that go wrong? It could go wrong in just thousands of different ways. And somehow they actually make it go right. I think because they... They're not so referential that they're afraid to do things, but they're also not so adhering to like, I need to make a copy of a David Bowie song that it doesn't sound original and it doesn't sound mm-hmm. true. So there's a nice balance that they strike with both Hot One and, and Ballad of Maxwell Demon that come at these like very climactic points in the film that I think is really nice and really kind of helps, it helps kind of string the story together. So they deserve a lot of credit for their work on this soundtrack. If, if, for any reason, like there was ever some kind of like anniversary tour for Velvet Goldmine, all these people were to come together to sing these songs, like Shudder to Think, I want to hear your versions of these songs. They're freaking awesome. Also not true. She just wants there to be a tour. So the McGregor like takes the stage again and she will be like front and center on the reel, like <laughs> crowd staring onto that stage. Like security, watch out for Nicole. I was going to say that, I mean, Ewan McGregor might, he turned 50 last week, so he might be past his, like, I'm going to take my pants off on stage, like, prime. Like, maybe he doesn't want to do that anymore. But, like, Iggy Pop is still doing it, so maybe it is okay. Yeah, I mean, he might surprise you. He might be all for it. And also, I have to ask, so to celebrate his 50th birthday, did you show up, like, on his doorstep with a cake? Popping out of the cake. Of his fan club? No, this is actually my birthday card to him. I was going to package it somehow. I'm going to send him this podcast. Another couple fun facts about uh, the lead singer from Shudder to Think, Craig Wedrin. So his career now is just doing film and TV work. And so occasionally he's had to write songs kind of in the style of what he's been asked to do. So in School of Rock... He doesn't write the end song that the kids play. He writes the song that uh, Jack Black's former band performs at the big battle of the bands. Heal Me, I'm Heartsick, which you can totally tell was written in the style of Creed. (laughs) Amazing. So he definitely has a knack for channeling different genres of rock and roll. Um, And it's been cool to see his name pop up in 
uh, shows like Brooklyn Nine Nine and like Fresh Off the Boat, like he seems to have pretty steady gigs making music. Um, so it's really cool to kind of see him transition from you know touring rock star to I don't know jack of all trades in the film and TV industry. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that pivot. I love that pivot. I hope this movie did that for him, at least in part, that it helped like springboard this, you know, whole new career trajectory because that is super cool. Um, there's also kind of like, you know, speaking of like the 90s, there's also kind of a Britpop undercurrent to this movie, right? I mean, not only with um with obviously the the radiohead connection, but um, you know, there's also kind of the pulp connection. Uh, Jarvis Cocker was originally supposed to play Jack Ferry. He was like the first choice for Jack Ferry, which would have been a very interesting thing. <laughs> he would need more lines. Right. I feel like I feel like Jarvis Cocker would be completely wrong for it, but also completely entertaining. <laughs> I was waiting for Noel Fielding to show up, but and then yes. I looked it up and apparently it was like kind of before his time, before he really like got big, but I was just like so surprised because I didn't actually know when the movie was made. As I was watching it, I didn't know when the beginning of his career was, but I was just like waiting and waiting and waiting for him to show up because this film is just the embodiment of his life and his career, but he never showed up and I was just like so disappointed. Right. (laughs) Sometimes I wish I could have that conversation with Noel Fielding, who I absolutely live for. I love Noel Fielding. Um, I wish he was in this movie. That would, then I would probably love this movie too much. You just like play it on the daily. It's like instead of like having some background music, you have like a background film. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But yeah, I mean, he could have played any character in this. Like it's literally like him. If if this film was the noir that Brandis and I were promised in the trailer, then Jarvis (laughs) Cocker, then Jarvis Cocker should have been the detective. (laughs) Right. So much more, yeah. I mean, both like you know, whatever in terms of like the way he presents himself musically, but also just like his whole persona is much more that, and not like I'm this like glam rock, like inscrutable. No, like I don't see him as Jack Ferry at all. So I find that kind of like hilarious and amazing. Courtney Love was supposed to supply music for this soundtrack too. Oh, so it wasn't just me thinking like the whole time I'm watching Tony Collette as Mandy. I'm like thinking Courtney Love to a degree. I mean, so I don't know that she was ever up for Tony Collette's like Angie Bowie-esque part, but she was supposed to, she was supposed to help with the film soundtrack, but apparently, apparently when she started seeing like, you know, whatever playback from the film and she started realizing that Ewan McGregor's character looks like Kurt Cobain, she was like, out. (laughs) Okay. So now I do feel like vindicated. It wasn't just me thinking like this looks like Kurt Cobain. No. This feels like Kurt Cobain, even though I know it's not I know it's not him. No, I mean literally Courtney Love like somehow wandered on set and thought the same thing and then didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. So it is it is definitely like part of the whole the whole quilt of making Ewan McGregor's character was definitely like we're gonna stitch in a little bit of a little bit of Kurt Cobain. We're gonna dye your hair like blonde and make it really stringy and make you like hang your head. This movie is so like alive with possibility. That's what makes it cool. And I think the more you lock it into like known quantities of like, that's Nirvana, that's David Bowie, like the less fun it is. Right. So all those accidental choices, I think, yeah, really, really added up to something, something quite cool and quite special. Um, and the intentional choices of just making like all of these musicians come together to kind of, in essence, like perform their own kind of love letter to, to glam, right? I mean, somehow they got like all of Placebo to just be in the movie, right? And Teenage Fan Club and Donna Matthews from Elastica are covering the New York Dolls, and- right? They're just and they're just you know in the movie like it's just like in situ, so it's not it's not anything forced. Like it at all feels very very organic and very much like a, you know, a labor of love that a lot of people work together to make happen. Yeah. Placebo, like they're the ones that like tarred up Christian Bale's terrible eyeshadow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like thoroughly surprised that this wasn't more ubiquitous than it was. I mean, I know it is a cult classic, but I'm just shocked that it's not like more well-known because it has so much to offer and I think it's relevant. Like even today, like it's still relevant. Like 
it's a really like really it's a gold mine <laughs> no pun intended but like i just i'm shocked that i haven't seen it yet or i, rem- had it I remember it was hard to track down it was yeah yes I had to download Voodoo to like watch it because it wasn't on anything else. And I was just like, how obscure and ridiculous is going, is this going to be? And it was ridiculous, (laughs) Um, but definitely not deserving to be that obscure. Like it should be on Netflix. It should be on Hulu. And I'm like shocked that it's not. Yeah. It's throughout the years. It's always been really hard to track down. I've had like various like VHS and DVD copies of this film. Like since the year 1998, which I know sounds crazy and it is crazy, but it's true. Um, And and it's just always been like notoriously hard to find copies of, to find information about. Um, But it's so fascinating because there are so many threads to pull, especially if you're into any of the subject matter. Like there's so much to unpack here that, you know, throughout like the early 2000s, wanting to know more about the making of this film and about, you know, all the music that went into it w- was really hard. And it was like really frustrating, but also kind of cool. And kind of like in that 70s way of like, I can't track down info about this. So I just have to like wildly speculate and watch it again on the DVD that I didn't return to Warehouse video. <laughs> but did you have it on Laserdisc? I did not have it on laser. I wasn't cool enough or like rich enough at that. Like, you know, I'm still living at home, like age that I had a laser disc player. <laughs> I also like, I was so young when I saw this film that like I was watching it like at, in my friend's house, like with other friends, like in a TV room because her parents were more permissive than mine. And which I guess just didn't care that we were <laughs> watching this like completely inappropriate movie for teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> fine just like straight up body oil full frontal no big deal right which to to be fair it's not like they put that on like you know whatever the dvd case at warehouse video i didn't know that was gonna happen it wasn't in the trailer brandis <laughs> it wasn't in the trailer it was not it was not advertised as uh soft core ewan mcgregor porn yeah i told everyone's family that this was just a mystery movie that we were gonna watch with Sherlock on the bbp it's a whodunit. <laughs> it's a whodunit, all right. And then it turned into a who didn't do it. <laughs> Finger guns. <It's> good. <laughs> it was a movie that wasn't particularly well received by the American press when it came out. Oh, shocking. Because, yeah. you know, we're so much more prudish than the UK press. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think Cans loved it. Who left it? In the Cannes Film, Film Festival. Ah, uh, the Cannes. Yeah, it either won something or it was nominated. It got like a few awards and Cannes um, was one of them. And like I said, nominated for Best Costume uh, for the Oscars. So it did get some like circuit nods. But I, again, I think it could have been nominated for more. It definitely like even acting like it was great. Yeah, it certainly makes sense that it's more of that like 90s art house type of film and it never really rose above that type of prominence. And I think it's it's been talked about in certain certain circles like since it came out. So it's had some longevity, um, especially given like the caliber of the actors that are in it, because, you know, as of like 2021, Christian Bale and Tony Collette and Eddie Izzard and Ewan McGregor and Jonathan Reese Myers, like these are all really big names. So mm-hmm. it's, and it, I mean, in addition to the music soundtrack being what it is, like, it's not like there are any lightweights in this. So it's kind of like a fascinating artifact um, to go back and look at kind of the earlier careers of a lot of these people that are really big now and then have gone on to do a lot of stuff. And Haynes himself has done pretty well for himself. He ha- absolutely, like, he's gone on to win Oscars, right? I mean, he's done from heaven and and carol and like so many movies that have been like more widely received as being like oscar films right um yeah you got kate blanchett nominated for playing bob dylan totally so he got his moment in the spotlight but just not for not for the music movie that you know i feel like is maybe kind of in some ways the more interesting one (laughs) like just because it takes so many crazy risks 
Mm-hmm. Well, again, creepy whispering children, Barbie's making out, like, what risk did he not take? What did he not do in this film? Yeah, Bob Dylan gave him permission to make that movie, so this is definitely the more risky one. It's definitely the more risky one. It's just, it's, there's nothing subdued about this film. It is completely over the top. It's completely weird. It is packed to the gills with amazing music. You cannot go, like, 60 seconds in this movie without hearing a song that is great and that has energy and that has nostalgia. So it's really got it all. I don't know why more people don't know about it. I feel like it again should have like just more screenings. Like get, let's get more people to know about Velvet Goldmine. That's obviously my personal mission. So if anybody wants to form that fan club, give me that. me. Three years ago, Nicole went to Ryan and she's like, you know, I think you should do a podcast about soundtracks. And that was the day she planted the seed for this huge diabolical plan to make Velvet Goldmine resurface in pop culture. There's just like, there's so few people that know that it even exists. So it's a weird boutique thing to talk about in in like a po- any podcast, even one that's strictly about soundtracks. Like it's it's very... It was definitely not what I expected. So thank you for letting me come here and talk about this. You mentioned this in the Life Aquatic episode, like, oh, if you ever want to do Velvet Goldmine, (laughs) I'm here. And look at us now. You know, but but it's definitely uh, a soundtrack that I kind of thought about when I started this podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, I love these soundtracks where a band forms just in service of the soundtrack and they never play live or do anything outside of the soundtrack. Right. Right. Like, come on. Like, I want to see the Venus and Furs live. Like, how the hell does that happen? How does it even happen? Like, how did all of the, how did all of the chips fall into place to make this soundtrack even possible? Like, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's beyond me. And it's another one of those soundtracks that, um, it's not really, it was never really widely available in any format. So, I mean, now that we have streaming, obviously, like there, there's more accessibility, but it's always just been kind of like just out of reach and therefore like always very cool to me and always very interesting. And I've always wanted to unpack like, yeah, like, come on. Like, I want to see like the full Venus and Furs show, Tom. Tom <laughs> you have nothing better to do. Yeah, I like how Todd Haynes and Randall Poster were like, hey, this supergroup thing is cool. Let's do it again, and I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. And then Randall Poster was like, yeah, and I'm going to do it again in Life Aquatic, except without a band. It's just going to be So George doing David Bowie songs in Portuguese. It's just such cool choices, you know? Like, unexpected and perfectly right for the films that they're in. Like, all these choices just feel, they feel right. There really isn't, no pun intended, a wrong note for me on this soundtrack. I think everything works for for its moment. Um, and it's all super integrated, which you also can't say about very many soundtracks. Like a lot of stuff just kind of ends up like we had to make a soundtrack. So it's like, it gets dumped there. Right. But these are all like very crucial to moments in the movie, to parts of the story, like their satellite of love by Lou Reed being used when like Brian Slade and Kurt Wilde are, are, you know, finding this like attraction to each other and they go on like this carnival ride and it's like playing and they're singing it to each other. It's like so ridiculous and over the top, but so good. Just works. It almost feels like the music came first and the movie came after to support, but obviously that's like not the case. It's that well integrated. It would have been really interesting to be a fly on the wall in the conversations of talking about who and how and trying to get those musicians on board to be this like super group and then be a fly on the wall when they're like, agreeing to like work with each other and create this like super group mm-hmm. be very interesting. yeah that's the song that uh my friend introduced me to the velvet goldmine soundtrack with he's like oh venus and furs is actually radiohead <laughs> you gotta hear their roxy music cover of 2hb and hb stands for humphrey bogart <laughs> that's so great this friend is amazing Shake that friend's hand for me next time you're allowed to shake a friend's hand. He's the one that does the uh, intro and outro music for the show. Ah, love him. Love it. That's great. I just love that anybody introduced you to this at all, and especially like in that particular way. Well, I mean, I knew about it. I just didn't know anyone that had it because I was like, oh, it's got those Shudder to Think songs. (laughs) From when I was 13. 
<laughs> it all connects to Shudder to Think. Well, thank you guys for coming back and for talking Velvet Goldmine. A.K.A. Ewan McGregor. A.K.A. Full Frontal with Ewan McGregor. <laughs> A.K.A. the best movie with Full Frontal that you've never seen. So watch it. Yeah, Todd Haynes is an interesting director. Um, he was almost like my cabaret of directors where it's like, I, I know so much about his soundtracks, but maybe I will never see any of his films. But for you, Nicole, I decided to watch this one. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice in the name of soundtracks that Nicole wants to talk about. It is appreciated and noted, and I will return the favor for whatever we do next time. High fidelity. I'm sure you've seen High Fidelity. I have seen High many times. I also, I have also seen it. For once. <laughs> Check out Soundtrack Your Life on Instagram, at SoundtrackCast. Subscribe to the podcast, um, whatever platform you use. Leave us a review. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out, too.